0: It's Thursday, December 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, as we go the first Christmas in over half a century without a network TV airing of A Charlie Brown Christmas, an extended reflection on its staying power, unexpected success, and how CBS originally wished they could get out of having to air it at all because they thought it was so bad. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. This month, for the first time in 56 years, a Charlie Brown Christmas will not air on network TV in the United States. Now, you might have heard this headline last year or the year before. When Apple TV Plus acquired the exclusive rights to all Peanuts-related media in 2019, they originally announced that in lieu of the traditional TV broadcast, they would make Peanuts holiday specials, "It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and A Charlie Brown Christmas, available for free to non-subscribers for a few days window at a time. But there was such a huge backlash over this disruption of over half a century of tradition that Apple begrudgingly made a deal with PBS to air the specials on PBS member stations, in addition to still being free to watch for a few days each on Apple TV+. Plus. That arrangement continued in 2021, but this year, the deal is over. Halloween and Thanksgiving came and went without any network TV broadcast of It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, or a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And we will soon cross the first Christmas since 1964 without a TV airing of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. You can still stream it for free, even without a subscription, from December 22nd through December 25th on Apple TV+. So is it really the end of an era, or just the end of network TV's dominance in our lives? To dig into that question a little, I want to take us all the way back to the 1960s and the making of this now-beloved Christmas special. To a time when there were doubts about if it could even be made, and then if CBS executives would allow this strange little rule-breaking special to air at all. Maybe you didn't grow up watching a Charlie Brown Christmas, or any Peanuts specials, or reading the comic strips, so it might surprise you to hear that the half-hour animated special from 1965 focuses on a kid fighting off depression and disillusionment about the commercialization of Christmas, and that the special made TV executives nervous both for its insufferably hip usage of an all-jazz score and its overtly religious interludes, among other than unheard of creative choices. And if you did grow up watching the special, you may not have realized before just how groundbreaking all of that was. So the Charlie Brown Christmas special, in a sense, began as a documentary. TV producer Lee Mendelson had just produced a documentary on famous baseball player Willie Mays. The Peanuts comic strip was already enormously popular at that point in 1963, and one running gag in the comics was how terrible at baseball Charlie Brown was, although he was also a huge fan of Willie Mays. Mendelssohn made this connection and thought it would be fun to make a documentary about the success of the comic strip, and that, having just made a film about arguably the best baseball player of all time, it would be fitting to now make a documentary about the worst. The documentary would be a day in the life of Peanuts creator and illustrator Charles Schultz, featuring a couple of short animations of the comic strip characters. Now, at this point in time, the characters had only ever jumped from the page to the screen for a series of Ford Motor Company commercials. The first of which, which aired in 1959, is a hilarious product of its time. It starts with Charlie Brown passing out cigars to all of his friends all of his fellow children friends. Eventually, Linus explains to his sister Lucy that they're chocolate cigars, and Charlie is passing them out not because he had another baby sister, a reference to an earlier comic strip in which Charlie Brown did just that when his baby sister Sally was born, but because, as Linus says, Ford has new economy twins. Yep, these cartoon children are celebrating with chocolate cigars because Ford Motor Company introduced a set of two new cars, the Falcon and the Fairlane 500. Some of the other commercials were more clever, but others just had the little kid characters robotically harping about the cost-saving features of these great Ford economy cars. Here's one such spot with Linus and Pigpen in 1961. And you can now select from two engines, the regular Falcon engine, famous for mileage, and the new, more powerful Falcon 170 Special. You get a choice of engines? That's right. You have to admire the generosity. You also have to admire the Falcon's economy. It goes up to 30 miles on a gallon of gasoline. 30 miles is quite a distance, especially when you compare it with what the others give you. The actors voicing the characters would eventually change, but if you watch any of the commercials, link in the show notes, you'll recognize the animations right away. They were done by Bill Melendez, an animator who previously worked for Disney on classics like Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi, and later with Warner Brothers on Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, all before being brought on for those Ford commercials— Now, being the only person that Charles Schultz trusted to bring his comic strip characters to life, notoriously difficult ones to animate with their huge round heads and short arms, Melendez was selected to animate the handful of shorts for Lee Mendelssohn's documentary. The last thing to secure for the film was the music. Lee Mendelssohn was a big jazz fan, but after being turned down by some of the bigger names of the day, like Dave Brubeck, he heard a new song on the radio while driving called Cast Your Fate to the Wind. It was the B-side of a single from a jazz musician named Vince Guaraldi, and it was so striking that it actually went on to win a Grammy that year. In a 2020 piece in The Atlantic about the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Caitlin Flanagan describes the song Cast Your Fate to the Wind as, quote, a song that comes over you in a powerful way, somehow expressing the way that melancholy and happiness can combine into an intense emotion. End quote. That balance of melancholy and happiness is precisely what made the Peanuts so popular in their early comic strip years, so Mendelssohn knew that Giraldi would be the right man for the job. It wasn't long after being brought onto the project that Giraldi had a burst of inspiration and came up with the popular Linus and Lucy song that we know better today as the Peanuts theme tune. But despite all of these creative energies lining up, no one was interested in buying the documentary. Even after a test screening and 18 months worth of meetings with networks and sponsors, no one bit. The documentary was never finished and never aired. But the Peanuts phenomenon just kept on growing. In spring of 1965, the cast of characters made the cover of Time magazine. Following that, an advertising agent who had attended a test screening of the documentary the year before called up Mendelssohn, but he didn't want to produce the documentary. He was more interested in the animated interludes that Schultz and Melendez had made for it. Coca-Cola was looking to sponsor a Christmas special, he said. Did they think they could put one together in six months and send an outline over in three business days? It was an absolutely ridiculous timeline, but fortunately, Charles Schultz was game and full of ideas. Melendez, the animator, talked Coca-Cola down from the traditional one-hour special to just a half-hour so that they could feasibly meet their deadline, but it still took them right up until a week before the special was due to broadcast to complete it. Having barely seen anything up to that point, the TV executives at CBS were worried. It would be too late at this point to change anything. They'd already been promoting the special heavily to the public. And after they sat down for a screening of the 30 minute animation, they were less than impressed. According to an account from Lee Mendelssohn in the 2000 Making of book, the executives turned to him afterwards and said, quote, Well, you gave it a good shot. End quote. They said despite how much they loved the Peanuts, maybe these characters were best left on the comic page, and that they would air it the following week because they had to, but they would not be ordering any more. Would that be the end of another Mendelssohn and Schultz collaboration? I mean, of course not. But before I explain what happened next, a word from our sponsors. Okay, so the CBS TV executives, just a week before the much-hyped release of A Charlie Brown Christmas, have finally seen the special, and they were not impressed. They said it felt flat and slow, like there wasn't really a plot, and that it felt disjointed. They weren't completely wrong. Going back to Flanagan in The Atlantic, she explains the lack of action in the special's plot as, quote, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had to leave his family, escape death at the clawed hands of the abominable snow monster, then guide Santa's sleigh around the world through a pea soup fog. The Grinch had to steal every Christmas tree and present and roast beast in Whoville and then return all of them. Karen had to try to get Frosty the Snowman back to the North Pole before he melted. But Charlie Brown? He doesn't have to go anywhere or do anything. All he has to do at Christmas time is cheer up. End quote. Flanagan further calls it waiting for Godot brought to you by Coca-Cola. And that was another odd thing. Ironically, for a movie that was commissioned and sponsored by Coca-Cola, one of the key themes is anti-commercialism. Charlie Brown is exasperated by his sister's meticulous laundry list of requests to Santa Claus, the elaborate decorations that Snoopy puts up on his doghouse, and the fake aluminum trees that have taken over the real ones on the Christmas tree lot. Aluminum trees, by the way, were a weird and brief fad that built on the space age trends of the 60s. Brian Earle, host of the podcast Christmas Past, has a great quick episode on them, and on this Charlie Brown Christmas special, which I consulted as part of my research. Links to both of those episodes in the show notes. But that cynicism and concern about commercialism was an odd choice for a kid's special, especially in an era when kids were starting to be marketed to in new and innovative ways, occasionally by the peanuts themselves. But the Peanuts, on the comic book pages or on the screen, were often like mini-adults, and this was part of their charm, both for adults who could enjoy the resonant themes or sarcasm of these kids' comics, and for kids who didn't feel like they were being talked down to. Nonetheless, the Christmas special took it up a notch, and some of the children who voiced the characters admitted later in life to being pretty confused by some of the dialogue. That was another unusual element of the special that Schultz insisted on, using actual children to voice the child characters. A Charlie Brown Christmas is sometimes touted as the first time that children's voices were used in animation, which doesn't quite seem to add up. Disney had used child actors at least in Peter Pan over a decade earlier, as well as in a number of smaller animations. But those actors were in their early to mid-teens, And I think what most people mean when they say that the Charlie Brown Christmas special was the first animation to use children was that they used young kids, mostly between the ages of six and nine, and most without prior acting experience. Certainly none of them were signed to major studios like the ones Disney worked with. And sounds like it led to a pretty chaotic recording environment with so many little kids running around. One challenge with kids that young is many of them can't read as quickly as they need to speak. So Bill Melendez, the animator, fed many of them their lines, whispering to them in the studio before they would recite it themselves. Melendez, originally from Mexico, had a slight accent that some of the kids would occasionally copy and then they would have to record the take all over again. But using actual, largely untrained kids gave the special and the characters a real air of authenticity. Watch a clip from any of the early Peanut specials back to back with one of the Ford commercials, which I believe used adult actors, and you'll see what I mean. But another reason the CBS execs might have thought it fell flat was because the special had no laugh track, which was common at the time. Schultz had been adamant about that. He believed audiences would know when to laugh and not have to be told. But for people used to hearing that track, I could see how it might make something feel slow and flat at first. And the calm, tinkling jazz score probably didn't help matters either. Kids specials and Christmas specials writ large at the time were usually far more upbeat and lyrical with their music. Vince Guaraldi, on the other hand, used his Linus and Lucy piano piece that he'd come up with for that ill-fated documentary, made a few more jazzy covers of traditional Christmas songs, and wrote the slow title theme, Christmas Time is Here. Originally, none of those songs had lyrics, which was a relatively unheard of thing for Christmas music at the time. As Derek Bang wrote in an essay featured by the Library of Congress when the special's soundtrack was added to the National Registry in 2012, Traditional hymns and popular secular songs alike tend to use their lyrics and the emotion of the singers to convey the Christmas spirit. Instrumental Christmas music exists, of course, but at that point, none of those purely instrumental Christmas tracks had ever catapulted into public consciousness the way that ones with lyrics had. I mean, after all, Christmas music largely originates from hymns and caroling or wassailing, all singing first types of music. So, in a concession to the executives, Mendelssohn agreed to add lyrics to at least the title theme, Christmas Time is Here. But with such a quick turnaround, he couldn't find anybody to write the lyrics, so he did it himself in about 10 minutes on the back of an envelope. The jazzy, mostly lyricless score made the Charlie Brown special very cool. But the special also butted up against the rules in the opposite direction, by being too traditional. Schultz, from the very beginning, wanted the story to be about the true meaning of Christmas. Having converted to the fundamentalist Church of God after serving in World War II, Schultz was adamant that a special for children include the Christian background for the holiday, and specifically, a Bible passage. It's kind of surprising to consider, but reciting Bible verses on TV back in the 1960s wasn't really done, and the TV executives did not want to rock the boat in that way, especially in what was supposed to be a more secular Christmas special. But Schultz stuck to his guns, and we ended up with one of the more memorable moments in any Peanuts special and within the whole canon of American Christmas movies— Linus asking for a spotlight on stage in the midst of an out-of-control school pageant rehearsal, and then reciting, off-book, the story of the Nativity from the King James version of the Gospel of Luke, performed in real life by Christopher Schia, who was just seven years old at the time. He credits his mom's doctorate in 17th century literature for his impressive elocution of that text. And this delicate balance between hip and traditional, cynical but innocent— Disillusioned, but still magical, is what I think has made a Charlie Brown Christmas the lasting legacy it has become, and what those CBS TV executives failed to see at the time. After airing in 1965 to huge success, those executives went back on their word and ordered four more specials. The Peanuts, already a phenomenon, hit an all new tipping point, going on to win their first Emmy Award, produce countless more specials and feature films and episodic series over the years, and become an annual mainstay on TV for several major holidays. The making of book for the special quotes Matt Zoller Setz in The Newark Star Lodger, who speculates why this unusual special about a young boy feeling disenchanted with Christmas still resonates writing back in 1995, quote, "'We've all felt melancholy during the holidays, "'and we've all been reluctant to say so "'because that means pondering "'what the season is all about. "'That's a tough job for a philosopher or a theologian, "'let alone a sweet little round-headed kid. "'Television today favors fast, frequent, "'exaggerated bursts of action and confrontation.'" In comparison, a Charlie Brown Christmas is almost unnervingly reflective, dependent on words, emotions, and small grace notes rather than speed, glitz, and noise. Charlie Brown is America's most beloved loser, forever falling short of his goals, endlessly stung by failure. Yet he keeps striving, in his own mopey, block-headed way, to become a better person and to make the rest of us better, too. In the process, he gives us an invaluable Christmas gift, the gift of introspection, end quote. And Bill Nichols wrote in a 2005 USA Today piece celebrating the then 40th anniversary of the special, quote, scholars of pop culture say that shining through the program's skeletal plot is the quirky and sophisticated genius that fueled the phenomenal popularity of Schultz's work. The Christmas special epitomizes the nostalgic appeal of holiday television classics for baby boomers raised as that medium gained prominence, says Robert Thompson, a professor of television and popular culture at Syracuse University. Thompson notes that other Christmas specials made during the same era, such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman, also air each year to strong ratings. This is the only time in the year when TV programs from the LBJ years play on network television and do very, very well, he says. For millions of baby boomers, these things become as much a holiday tradition as hanging a stocking or putting up a tree. What makes a Charlie Brown Christmas the gold standard, in Thompson's view, is that it somehow manages to convey an old-fashioned, overtly religious holiday theme that's coupled with Schultz's trademark sardonic, even hip, sense of humor— End quote. Which does make me wonder if watching a Charlie Brown Christmas special was a nostalgic tradition for boomers, which they shared with my generation, is my generation now sharing it enough with the next ones? Couple that with Apple taking it off of network TV. Is this the end of a Charlie Brown Christmas? Have we moved on? I mean, Apple TV Plus is making new Peanuts content with their new The Snoopy Show, and Snoopy in plush form is currently orbiting the moon on board the Orion spacecraft, so he and the rest of the Peanuts gang are definitely still identifiable pop culture figures, and kids are still being introduced to the Peanuts both in newer, perhaps more relatable ways and in the old mid-century versions, if their family has Apple TV Plus. And they pick the Snoopy show to watch over the mountains of other options on streaming TV. Now how much do people sit down to watch things live on TV anymore anyways? New episodes of shows and live sports and award shows, sure, maybe. But does anyone really make a point to sit down at a particular time with the rest of the country and watch a half-hour movie you've seen a million times or could easily pull up on a streaming platform at a more convenient time to your schedule? In many ways, this is just a changing way of how we interact with TV. But the extent to which that might contribute to some traditions and some beloved hallmarks of film and television fading away remains to be seen. At that very first screening, just a week before Charlie Brown Christmas was broadcast in 1965, before the one when many of the TV executives were worried they'd made a huge mistake, but the very first one, when the production team got to watch it in full for the first time one of the men from the animation team, Ed Levitt, was not worried. He loved it. He stood up and declared, a Charlie Brown Christmas will run for a hundred years. In terms of running annually on TV, we made it a little more than halfway there, which is an impressive feat unto itself, considering the rest of that anecdote recounted by Lee Mendelssohn says that they all would have settled for just two years. But if we update the term run for our era of streaming platforms, meaning available to watch and heavily featured this time of year, then, hey, maybe A Charlie Brown Christmas will run for a hundred years yet. Well, if you want more behind-the-scenes discussions about now-classic Christmas movies, Brett Goldstein, a.k.a. Roy Kent on Ted Lasso, recently interviewed a panel of Muppets about their memories of filming The Muppet Christmas Carol in honor of its 30th anniversary. The interview has the usual dry humor of -of run-of-the-mill Muppet content, so if you only like the more upbeat Muppet Christmas Carol or Treasure Island, this might not be your cup of tea, but if you are a big Muppet fan, you'll love it. And there may be no big, Muppet fan than Brett Goldstein himself. As he has catapulted to fame through his writing and acting on Ted Lasso, he has been very outspoken about his love for the Muppets, and he is not making it up. A few years before his big break, he performed a six minute, one man version of A Muppet Christmas Carol for a charity gig, and yes, the entire thing was filmed and is posted on his YouTube channel. Link in the show notes. Perhaps the best news, however, to come out of his recent interview with the Muppet Christmas Carol cast is his pitch to Miss Piggy that he and she star in a Muppet adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Just imagine Brett Goldstein as Darcy and Miss Piggy as Lizzie Bennet. And by the way, I've mentioned it before, but the extended cut of The Muppet Christmas Carol with the heartbreaking When Love Is Gone ballad that was cut from the theatrical release and later DVDs and streaming versions, but included in the home video VHS versions, creating a pseudo-Mandela effect in many of us, will be going live on Disney Plus tomorrow, Friday the 9th. Extended cut of The Muppet Christmas Carol dropping tomorrow. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.